This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. I'm Ahmed Hankir. I'm 40 years old and I'm an NHS mental health doctor. So I work for the National Health Service and I'm based in London in the UK. I identify as a wounded healer. And what I mean by that is I'm both a mental health care provider and uh, a mental health care receiver. So I was once a psychiatric patient. So I, I live with a mental health condition and I'm not ashamed to share that information. I, I embrace my vulnerability. Welcome to Health and Living with me, Xiao Ik. You're listening to Because Feelings Matter, the show that features conversations with people about their mental health issues. This year, Dr. Ahmad Hankir was among six recipients of the World Health Organization Director General's Global Health Leaders Awards. It is a notable award, one that the Director General, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, personally decides on in recognition of outstanding contributions to advancing global health, demonstrated leadership and commitment to regional health issues. Regard the conflagration in my wake and an observable inferno burning bridge after bridge. Emancipate me from the shackles of bipolar. Release me, I beseech thee, from the indignations of my past. Take up the quill, I will, and relate my tale of woe I shall. But wait, an incandescent silver lining? Was it not the mystic Khalil Gibran who proclaimed, the more melancholy carves into your being, the more jubilation it can contain, and even the beauty of birth will leave its own scars? So adorn my face then, not with a masquerade, but with a smile that never fades. And patient no more, but healer now I am. And off into the kingdom of the sick I shall foray, with the lineament and manner born of experience as my instruments of healing. And as I behold my neighbor's gaze, she whispers unto me, You're a good doctor, Dr. Hanker. An unbridled joy gushes forth from my heart. It's not me who heals you, my dear, but it's you who heals me. That was an excerpt from The Wounded Healer, an anti-stigma lecture by Dr. Ahmed, targeted at medical students and has been produced as a documentary. The lecture combines the performing arts and storytelling with psychiatry and has been integrated into the medical school curriculum of four UK universities. If that doesn't sound like what you'd expect from a lecture about mental health, it's because Dr. Ahmad is quite unlike most other psychiatrists you will meet. In our conversation, he didn't talk about diagnoses or symptoms. He didn't reference the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Instead, he talked about the realities of living with conflict, trauma, racism, financial insecurity the living experiences that millions of people go through on a daily basis. I think what drives me is challenging mental health-related stigma and discrimination whenever and wherever we see it. 
And what bothers me a lot are the uh, many injustices that people living with mental health conditions encounter, experience. I'm passionate about empowering and dignifying people living with mental health conditions. I'm, I'm passionate about challenging or rather debunking the many myths about people living with mental health conditions that abound. And there are plenty of negative stereotypes and caricatures. So I want to contribute to a cultural revolution that normalizes living with mental health conditions. You know, Goffman, Irvin Goffman defines stigma as a deeply discrediting attribute that reduces the better from a whole unusual person to a tainted and discounted one. And the individual is thus disqualified from full social acceptance. So I think there was always something, you know, always something like, I don't know if it was my ethnicity or, or my faith or, you know, this is before I kind of had that episode triggered by the trauma of the 2006 Lebanon war. And that was a turning point in my life, a watershed moment. When you discover how utterly beholden you are to the power and mercy of our minds. And then you discover how stigmatizing you are towards people with mental health conditions. The episode that Dr. Ahmad refers to was described in his autobiographical case study published in the journal BNJ Case Reports. He wrote that when the reports of the Lebanon war began trickling in, he started to experience some changes in his behaviour and state of mind. He began having grandiloquent ideas, racing thoughts, pressurised speech. He was argumentative, irritable, impetuous. He became overgenerous to others and went on spending sprees, which even rendered him homeless. Now, this should have been a time that he received compassion and support, but it was not so straightforward due to stigma, both external and self-inflicted, shaped by his circumstances at the time and in the preceding years of his life. So now I was born in Belfast and I was raised in Dublin. My parents migrated from Lebanon to, to Ireland, and this was during the war, the civil war in Lebanon, which was a, which was a brutal war. It was, it was a bloody war. And I always quote my mother, she continues to say that it was like jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire because in the 80s, there was the conflict in Ireland uh, known as the Troubles. And Belfast was regarded as one of the most dangerous cities in the world at the time. I think, you know, that uh, is an ingredient, an integral ingredient that contributes to my identity you know, being born in Belfast and being raised in Dublin. And I have very fond childhood memories, actually. I remember Dublin. Uh, I remember people being very friendly towards me. And I feel, I remember feeling accepted. It's only when we moved to England that, I don't know how this is going to sound, but um, I'll, I'll just say it. it. I noticed or I felt that I wasn't white. And we used to get into scraps and fights on a regular basis and I don't ever recall being the aggressor it was more kind of trying to defend myself um so I think that also you know contributed to my identity and then when I was 12 years old we moved to Lebanon with with my parents and my my especially my mother you know understandably she was homesick she missed her parents immensely and it was quite a shock you know I remember trying to adjust to the, uh, for example, the weather and the mosquitoes as well. But, you know, things like we didn't have 24-hour electricity in Lebanon at the time. And, and that's the reality at the moment as well. I mean, the situation in Lebanon is terrible at the moment. 
and you would see things like bullet holes and the walls and it's like pe- the people living in Lebanon were habituated to that you know they they were used to it and it's it's not something that I was used to Dr. Ahmad talked about what contributed to his identity, and it was something that continued to be shaped over the years in Lebanon and in the UK. I think I felt very vulnerable because I didn't know how to speak Arabic. And it's interesting because I was often referred to as Ajnabi, which in Arabic is foreigner. So you might look Lebanese, but then when you start to speak, and I I taught myself Arabic, um, people might notice that you're not fluent, or you might speak with an accent, and then they start to ask questions, and then you have to explain yourself, and, you know, things like that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, I love I love saying this in French, l'étranger, the outsider. It's one of my favorite books by Albert Camus. Because, you know, you feel like an, uh, an outsider. You don't feel like you belong to the community in Lebanon, but you also don't feel like you belong to the community here in the UK. And that there's a very derogatory term. I don't mean to offend anyone by it. It's the P word um, in the UK. It's called Paki. You know, if you're a person of color, you're you're a Paki. I guess what they're saying is, you know, you're not one of us, right? So you're not being treated as if you're British. You're not being treated as if you're Lebanese. So you know, like you know, who are you? And I think as as, as a species, we long to belong. We long to belong. And you're. I was a teenager in Lebanon. You know, we experienced hardship but some of the happiest memories of my life. And especially towards the end, because it was almost like celebrity status sometimes uh, uh, with your peers. You know, if you're from, you know, oh my God, even though, you know, I didn't live in London, but, you know, it's almost kind of synonymous, isn't it? London, UK. And and I I worked, I studied really hard because I kind of, I guess as as a means of escapism, I withdrew into my studies and I was top of the class. And you can imagine that, you know, like on graduation day, you know, they make the announcement. It was only a small class, but nonetheless, I, I was still the top. And yeah, the great expectations only to leave my family. You know, I'll never forget the, the date, the 10th of July, 2000. That was the date that I was 17 years old. I left my family behind me. And you know, when you are nostalgic, you romanticize, don't you? You're you're 17 and you think about the UK that you were raised in. And I remember actually when I came and, and I had to make money, I had to find a job fast. And I remember finding a job working in, a, in Marks and Spencer's and just working in the food store. I remember being so happy being able to find a job because so many people in Lebanon, my, my compatriots are unemployed, a minimum wage as well. So it's interesting. So it's like it's, it's happiness is relative, right? Like now if he said to me, oh, you have to go stack shelves and minimum wage. I drowned myself in my sorrows that there was no tomorrow. But, you know, the 17-year-old me at the time, I think when I first got the job, I was very happy. But then, you know, despite my best efforts to really kind of integrate uh, with the British people, and even though I'm a British citizen by virtue of being born in Belfast, I was never treated as British. I just felt, you know, uh, despite my best efforts to integrate and to be accepted, I always felt that I wasn't. I think... Um, being Muslim was a factor. I don't drink alcohol. And it's almost something that, you know, it's like, it's really part of the culture here, isn't it? You know, um, they would talk about their adventures and misadventures and their shenanigans and how they don't remember. You know, not being able to participate in those discussions because 
you know, what did you do last night? So I don't know, I went for a run or I went to watch a film and I remember what happened last night. You don't remember what happened last night. So, um, it's, I mean, it can be quite comical. It can be quite comical. I, I, I can't deny it. Um, so I, I was doing that for a year, uh, stacking shelves, cleaning floors. And then I started to feel quite melancholic. Um, I mean, don't forget, I was just a teenager. You know, my mind was still maturing. My brain was still developing. My heart was still growing. I didn't understand why when I would say good morning to people when I was cleaning floors, they wouldn't say good morning back to me. And I think I was naive and I, I was clueless and pure even and innocent. I missed my parents. I felt quite uh, disconnected because I didn't feel like there were other people in my situation. Um, I would see people my age living with their parents, preparing for their A-levels. And that dream of mine to become a doctor I felt like I was a million miles away from realizing that dream. But he persisted, even if it was to be a long journey. The following year, we enrolled into a sixth form college and I continued to work full-time hours because I'm independent, I'm financially independent. And this is not easy. It's relentless. It's non-stop. Imagine that, you know, waking up at what, five o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, you're in the north of England, it's winter. It's dark, it's cold, it's wet, and you have to wait for a bus to take it to the city centre. And, and then what's waiting for you, you know, are these empty shelves that you need to stack those shelves and these empty fridges. And, and you do that for 14 hours. And it's, I mean, don't get me wrong, of course, you know, someone has to do it. And there's no shame in doing that, but that's not what I wanted. Um, it was my ambition to become a doctor. And then it was the fear. Because, you know, trying to get the grades to get into medical school is tough enough. And it's the most competitive course in the UK. And the fear of not getting the grades and the threat, because when you're working full time, you know, you would rather use that time to study. You need to recover. You need to recover from working full time. But you can't because you're studying full time and you can't recover from studying full time because you're working full time. You know, and you're not doing the things that kids your age are doing, going on holidays and whatever, having fun. Not that, I, not that I'm complaining. I was, I was just extremely grateful. It's all relative, isn't it? You see, you see kids your age in Lebanon who, you know, it's a dream of theirs to, to live in the UK or the US or Canada or Australia or, you know, whatever, and have that opportunity. They just, you know, they want that ticket, right? Dr. Ahmad eventually got the grades and matriculated into Manchester Medical School. That was really difficult as well. Because, you know, you're joining a new kind of community or cohort or whatever, and naively you think you'll be accepted by them all because you've got this big heart and you just want to connect with as many people as you can. You've got so much love to give. And it's not like that. It's not like that at all. You know, being a gregarious, extrovert, vocal Muslim man of color. And, and this is medical school. You know, there's a lot of high achievers and, um, you know, competitive people and, so that was a real struggle. I mean, people from lower income backgrounds are underrepresented in medical schools. Um, and it's usually people who go to private schools and, you know, very affluent. And I was still, I mean, my parents were still living in Lebanon at the time. And then you have this kind of identity crisis as well, you know, kind of gradually deviating from that path of righteousness. Um, and you start to succumb to the temptation, which is seemingly ubiquitous and it's all normalized. And, and you're like, wait a second, this is haram. You know, I shouldn't be doing this. And then you have this kind of existential crisis. And like you, one day you kind of 
you wake up and you behold your reflection in the mirror and you become unrecognizable even to yourself. And that realization is so acute and it's so overwhelming that you do have an identity crisis. You do have an existential crisis. As I said, you experience emotional turmoil. And I was about to say breakdown, but, you know, is it a break? Is it a breakdown or is it a breakthrough? You know, it's a breaking point, right? Something, something's happening, you know. Something isn't right. This is, I'm not being true to myself. Who am I? What have I become? Is this where I want to be at this stage in my life? And, you know, are these the people I want to associate myself with? And I remember once, yeah, that there was a report. Um, it was the, the dean of the teaching hospital that I was allocated to when I was a medical student. And he was reading this report. And I'm like, that's not me. You know, I didn't leave my family behind me, you know, to be described in that way. Dr. Ahmad experienced a severe mental health crisis while in medical school. It was a manifestation of his bipolar disorder and the compounding challenges in his life. He went from full-blown mania to deep depression and suicidal ideation, but eventually recovered in 2010 and graduated as a doctor in 2011. But it was a fraught journey, full of trials, and there was little stability or security. So I think that was always the fear that it would be taken away from me because of these disadvantages, because I'm having to work, because I'm having this identity crisis, the precarity of everything as well, like, and not knowing if at any moment it would be taken away from you. I remember once I spoke to a wise young man and I said to him, do you know how hard I had to work to get into medical school? And with, he was so gracious, I think. He said, and that's why it would be so hard to take it away from you. After the break, Dr. Ahmad Hankir's uphill battle and onwards to recovery. This is Because Feelings Matter, a series featuring personal stories of people and their mental health issues. Stay tuned to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. And that's the thing, people see you now, you know, not surviving, but thriving. You know, heaven forbid that you have a severe mental illness and you recover and you thrive. And then what is the message here? Like, you can't recover? That you can't function? Is that the message? If you are, if you have severe mental illness for the rest of your life, you'll be miserable and you'll never succeed or... Well, that's, that's nonsense. That's dangerous. Hello and welcome back to Health and Living. I'm Xiao Ik. You're listening to Because Feelings Matter, a series featuring personal stories of people and their mental health issues. On this episode, Dr. Ahmad Hankir talks about his personal and mental health struggles. As a British Muslim of Lebanese descent, as an individual living with bipolar disorder, as a survivor of psychological distress and immense personal trauma, and as a wounded healer, a healthcare provider with his own insights and experiences of pain and suffering that he draws on to empathize with his patients. People can dehumanize you and you have very low self-esteem and you have little value uh, for yourself and you internalize it as well because then you start to criticize yourself and um, you don't show yourself the compassion and the love that you would show to your nearest and dearest, uh, for example, but it's the, it's the opposite. So yeah, of course it's difficult because you internalize this public stigma and you kind of develop self-stigma, you know, and you suffer, a lot of us are suffering in silence. I, I know I was suffering in silence for so long, you know, I was terrified. 
that I will be labeled as a madman or I think you know what you're punishing yourself as well right for the things that you said and did when you were unwell and all the damage that was done and sometimes you wouldn't even seek help because you would say to yourself oh I deserve this I deserve to suffer you know and that's not you that's your mental health condition or your mental illness or mental disorder or psychological distress or you know whatever language you whatever words you want to use so you know please don't do that and sometimes it just takes someone saying that emphatically you know with conviction don't punish yourself you know and it's easier to internalize that cognitively than it is to internalize that emotionally you know because knowing something is one thing and feeling something is another right and it, it, that gap is just so huge isn't it you know i know that but that's not how i feel you know and it take it can take a long time for you to internalize it both cognitively and emotionally um but then you know sometimes it, even like writing it down you know and this is what you know some of the approaches that we have you know like affirmations or but also you know populating a gratitude diary as well we know that is associated with positive outcomes because of his personal experience with depression dr ahmad doesn't promise quick fixes he doesn't promise that medication will be the panacea he recognizes psychosocial factors and the complex interplay of social determinants like poverty income inequality, racism and social exclusion, among others. And the fact is, recovery from mental illness is more than just a clinical definition. Recovery isn't only in a hospital at the hands of a doctor. Recovery is in the living. I'm a Muslim and I've always been honest and open about that, vocal about that. And, you know, so my faith, God, I mean, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for God. Going to the mosque, for example, and praying my prayers and such such an important factor exercise modifying your lifestyle you know your diet your, and it's hard okay so i don't know if you know like so if you have a severe mental illness on average your life expectancy is 20 years less compared to someone who doesn't have a severe mental illness why is that because when you're depressed forget about not having the motivation or the will to exercise you can't even get out of bed you can't get out of bed you don't have the energy you're apathetic what we call anhedonia there's no joy in your life you know you're not living you're existing this is the vicious cycle right you don't have the motivation to exercise your mood it worsens right it deteriorates you start to feel lower and the lower your mood is the less motivated you are to exercise it's kind of like a vicious cycle isn't it you know and it's trying to break that cycle you know how do you break that cycle you know behavioral activation okay start off by getting out of bed right and you know what let's celebrate this You might, I was about to say small victories. That's not a small victory. That's a huge victory. You know, if you tidy your bed, that's a monumental achievement. You know, I couldn't even get out of bed, let alone tidy it. You know, so you celebrate these victories, right? And it's all relative. So I said, although maybe someone else will say, "Oh, that's not even a victory," but I guess other people living with mental health conditions can relate. Say, "Oh no, that is a huge victory." Nobody will ever really know what a person goes through in their battle with a mental health condition and in their recovery. As Dr. Ahmad once tweeted, saying to someone they shouldn't be depressed because others have it worse is like saying to someone they shouldn't be happy because others have it better. Never invalidate someone's distress and suffering. You know, it takes time. It's a process. I wish you could just kind of snap your fingers and you just feel better that doesn't happen you know no it, it could take a long time and and i say you know i talk about this i talk about normalizing regression you know sometimes we take one step forward and two steps backward and that's okay that happens you know i mean you know so long as we kind of get to 
our goal um, in the end, you know, and it's messy and it's painful, you know, and it's not easy. But I think the important thing is to be patient because after hard trip, there is ease. So it's forbearance, it's fortitude, it's self-belief. All of these things, you know, they're so important. Reminding yourself of what you can achieve as well. And staying away from, you know, distancing yourself from negative people. And cliche though it may be that, you know, the, it's true. The sweet isn't so sweet without a bit of the bitterness, you know. So don't give up hope. Things can change and stay. Among the many hats Dr. Ahmad wears is also that of Lead for Public Education and Engagement at the University of Nottingham's WHO Collaborating Centre for Mental Health Disabilities and Human Rights. Is the attainment of good mental health a human right? Of course it is. Without a doubt, that's an emphatic yes. You know, and unfortunately, human rights violations continue um, and which can adversely affect mental health. Um, but also not having easy access to high-quality mental health care, that's also a human rights violation. It's a human right to have easy access to high-quality mental health care, and our human rights are being violated. What kind of changes have you seen in the conversations about mental health in the last 10 years? It depends. Um, I think there's still a lot of stigma attached to certain conditions, you know, personality disorder, psychosis, schizophrenia, you know, things like that. So we have made some progress, but there's still a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, we need more resources. So I guess stigma at the level of resource allocation, uh, policy, what like only 11% of the health budget is allocated for the provision of mental health care services in the UK. Um, and that's good compared to other nations. I think, you know, other lower middle income countries, can it's, it's only 1% or 2%. Where do you see yourself heading in terms of your mental health? Balance, peace. These are like priceless. Um, I remember, I think maybe I was too focused on my career and I'm still focused on my career, but not at the expense of your mental health. I mean, I want to continue prioritizing my mental health and normalizing the prioritization of my mental health. And so that's, you know, practicing my faith and exercising and eating well and having good financial health as well. You know, all, all of these things are, are so important. Um, you know, I, I want to make this world a better place to live in, um, for sure. You know, I, I want to kind of promote kindness because we know that kindness is beneficial for our mental health and there's just too much cruelty out there. So try to, I guess, address the injustices, continue fighting against mental health-related stigma and discrimination because I find that empowering. I find that even therapeutic and cathartic, you know, so continue to grow in many ways, spiritually, emotionally. But, you know, I guess also, um, you know, I want to try to reach as many people as I can. Are you ever told to stay in your lane? Oh, the time. Yeah, but I mean, if I'm not hurting anyone, um, on the contrary, if, I'm help- if many people are saying that I'm helping people, and if it's in my intention to help people, and that I have these checks and balances in place, um, they can say that until they're blue in the face. Why, why are they saying to me, stay in your lane? Why, in other words, conform? I'm not here to conform, you know, I'm here to disrupt, you know. I'm here to rock the boat, you know. I'm here to contribute to a cultural revolution, you know. That might be an inconvenience for some people, but that's not going to stop me or deter me.
Dr. Ahmad was named after his grandfather, who was orphaned, illiterate and lived in poverty. Ahmad Sr. survived by selling hummus from his donkey on the streets of Haifa. Yet another facet of Dr. Ahmad Hankir. Doctor, patient, survivor, teacher, poet. I ask him whether he finally knows who he is now. I'm on a path of discovery, you know, and we take it moment at a time and it fluctuates. No, I think I have a better understanding of who I am and what matters to me, you know, what my values are and what my vision is and what my ambition is. And, and I feel less vulnerable now. So to emphasize, you have a better understanding of, of yourself and, you know, the, the, your personality structure is, is more robust. And, uh, but, you know, we're still, we're still vulnerable. I don't have all the answers. I still make my mistakes. And although you don't make mistakes, mistakes make you. Uh, I think that's a powerful quote. You know, but we're constantly learning. Um, but I, you know, identify as, as a Muslim. Um, I identify as a British citizen, um, as an Irish citizen, a Lebanese, uh, maybe not so much citizen, um, but definitely plays an important uh, role in my in my character and my identity. And as a healer, as a wounded healer, um, that's my identity too. And I'm grateful. Yeah, that's where I am at the moment. And be happy for this moment. You know. This has been Because Feelings Matter, a series of conversations with people about their mental health issues. If you missed any part of the show, or if you'd like to listen to previous podcasts, you can search for it on bfm.my or on our BFM app. You've been listening to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.